But um, that's really, you know, that video, although it was kind of his promo for his book, it's really where we're at tonight. It's really where we start um, crossing into some of the hows of marriage. We've been looking at the what, and, um, and so we're kind of in this gray area where we're still looking at the what, but crossing into the hows of marriage. And so we're going to look at that tonight as Ephesians five fifteen through 33 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so, what we think of family is much more than an American phenomenon, uh, and it's a biblical phenomenon for Christians. And yet, so often, we tend to go towards the other side and see what the American worldview has to say about uh, family and marriage, parenting, being a child. Uh, there's two extremes in this. Uh, in our hearts, in the church, sometimes we totally disregard our family and we neglect them. And then on the other side, we make family the end all. Family is it. Family is why I'm living and breathing. In family, I have my being. And it becomes an idol to us. It becomes uh, our God and the end rather than just the means to an even greater end worshiping God. We talked about that in depth last week. And so we just pray that God would take the American view and the, the world view and the European view and that he would just conform it to a biblical view tonight. Um, one man, Peter Marshall, who was the formal chaplain of the United States Senate said this, marriage is not a federation of two sovereign states. It is a union domestic and social, spiritual and physical. It is the fusion of two hearts, the coming together of two tributaries, 
which coming together after marriage will flow together in the same direction, carrying the same burdens of responsibility and obligation. Marriage is a oneness, divine and indivisible. We looked in Genesis chapter 1 when God created everything and saw that it was good. Then he finally created man and he saw that it was very good. And then there was something that caused him to say, oh, this isn't good. And we know that that was when he said it's not good that man should be alone. And so God fashioned a helper comparable to him, suitable and fitting for him. Out of the side of Adam, he used Adam's rib to make this comparable counterpart. There was to be intimacy. There was to be this divine creation made to worship God. And it was to be indivisible. It's mysterious beyond explanation, Paul gives it to us in a bit there in Ephesians chapter 5, but it's also very real. It's very intimate. And yet, so often, some of you have witnessed this in, in our culture, that this intimacy, this two shall become one flesh, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This intimacy seems to be so rare in 2012. The fastest growing marital category in 25 years is divorced people, according to the United States Census Bureau. This number has quadrupled from 1970 to 74, the last quote I could find, sorry. But that's huge. A quadruple in divorced persons. We know it's only been growing there's a man named Professor Lawrence Stone who's been distinguished as this great family historian from Princeton University. And he said that the scale of marital breakdown in the West since the 60s has no historical precedent that I know of. There's been nothing like it in the last 2,000 years and probably longer. Newsweek had an article called Saving Family and in their research, they, they wrote that the home is the most dangerous place to be outside of riots and war. 30% of homes experience some kind of domestic violence. Two million homes have experienced lethal weapons every year being used. 20% of police officers killed in the light of duty every year are killed answering calls regarding family fights. Anywhere from 6 to 15 million women are battered each year in the United States. As one police officer said, this is probably the highest unreported crime in the country. And so we read the United States chaplain's great quote that marriage is divine and indivisible and it just doesn't seem like it. You watch an episode of Cops or, uh, you know, Jerry Springer, which nobody here should ever watch that show. But we've seen the divine just, you know, it, we've seen it escape. We've seen it become so dividing. But God created marriage. He saw that it was very good. It was the epitome of his creation, being created in his image to reflect his glory. And he saw that it was very good. He blessed this couple saying, be fruitful and multiply. And if there was ever a couple that was supposed to make it, 
It wasn't so much Adam and Lauren, who are our newlyweds, their first time back from back to church. But it was Adam and Eve. This couple should have made it, right? Should have made it without sin. Should have made it without conflict. Should have made it without blaming each other before God. The woman gave me the apple, Adam said. Conflict already. How has that happened? Well, it's really simple, and uh, Paul Tripp touched on it. They fell. They fell, and they sinned, and they lost this created innocence that they had that wasn't just theirs to lose. They lost that innocence, and everyone who was born from their womb and seed would get this great inherent sin nature. I've got it. You've got it. If you've got a heart and you breathe and you walk on two legs, you've got it. Yes, even the chimpanzees have it. But they fell. Their sin plunged our entire race into a state of fallenness. And so in the scriptures, we see these relationships having consequences then. Adam and Eve, after they fell, they ran from God. After they ran from God, they ran from each other. They had offspring, and one cruelly murders the younger. Seems pretty typical in our modern local news. And it wasn't just because the Dark Knight trilogy had messed everybody up. Fratricide, the murdering of your family members, one of the earliest recorded sins in the scripture. It's not because of Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty. It's because of this inherent sin nature that we got from our great, 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 great grandpa. Maybe a few more greats in there. And so you then go from Cain murdering Abel, and you just simply read through the rest of the book of Genesis, and you see the fall again. And you see the fall again, and you see the results of the fall again, fall after fall after fall after fall, the devastating consequences and effects of sin ravaging humanity. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 23, you've got Noah and his son having a rift in their relationship due to his drunkenness and some funky kind of sexual indiscretion. Nobody really knows what happened there. Fall. Abraham and his nephew Lot have an impasse that makes them have to part ways on their family road trip. Fall. Genesis chapter 16, we see Abraham gets rid of his responsibilities. He heeds the counsel of his wife and goes into her handmaiden for procreative purposes. This is part of the fall. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot offers his own daughters to homosexuals of Sodom for sexual exploitation. Fall. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham, fearing for his life, deceitfully offers his wife Sarah uh, um, to Pharaoh, calling her his sister, putting her sexual purity in danger. The fall. In Genesis 22, there's a rift in the family between Sarah and now her crazy sister-wife, Hagar, the two women from whom Abraham had produced children, this rift is a result of the fall. In Genesis chapter 26, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree because we have good old Isaac being deceitful about his beautiful wife, Rebekah, 
and tells Ahimelech, or Abimelech, excuse me, that this is my sister, feel free to do whatever you want with her, and Isaac shows us again the fall. In Genesis 27, Jacob is in team with his mother and deceives his father to steal his brother's firstborn blessing and birthright, fall. Esau, in turn, tries to kill his younger, deceiving brother, part of the fall. Genesis 29, Jacob's uncle, Jacob's uncle Laban deceives his nephew only to turn around. And uh, the next chapter, be outdone by Jacob, who gets even with his uncle. It's part, part of the fall. In Genesis chapter 34, the daughters of Jacob, her name's Dinah, is raped and her father does nothing about it. Thanks to the fall. Her brothers in retaliation slaughter every man in the entire town and burn and pillage their wealth. It's the fall. Her, uh, in Genesis 35, Jacob's eldest son Reuben commits incest with one of his father's wives, Bilhah. Mm-hmm. Genesis 37, Jacob's sons have sibling rivalry, so they plot to kill the younger brother, Joseph, who is their father's favorite. A problem in and of itself. Uh, they sell him into slavery, return him to cruelly misrepresent Joseph's demise fall. You have uh, in Genesis chapter 38, Jacob's son Judah impregnating his own daughter-in-law Tamar, but is surprised by this news because he thought he had visited a prostitute. Fall. Later on in Genesis, the last chapter, you think it would all be good with Jacob and Joseph and all of the brothers being restored. Well, with the grave of the patriarch Jacob still warm from his death, the brothers start their lying and scheming all over again. And I know what you're thinking. All of this is in the Bible? Nope. This is just the first book of the Bible. <laughs> it goes on and on after that. It makes desperate housewives look so modest. And it makes our families look pretty good, huh? Actually, not the Rogers. We've been on the front page of the paper for a few things I'm not too proud of. Um, so what happened to this original design in the Garden of Eden, the shalom, the perfection, the divine and indivisible? It was all shattered because of sin. And it's the same thing that assaults our marriages and our families every single day. Every single conflict that you have in your home, in your car, on the way to church, on the way to work, wherever it might be, it's sin. It's a sin issue. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. He's a sinner. She's a sinner. We need to realize it. We need to realize that we fight, lie, cheat, manipulate, dispute, distrust. We lust for our own ways. We're thoughtless, insensitive. We're self-serving, self-promoting, self-asserting, self-distorted, self-absorbed. And you say, Rory, do you have the gift of the word of knowledge? How did you know this about me? And I just say, it takes one to know one. I am a co-beggar with you guys. We're all sinners, saved by grace. At least I hope that you've been saved by the grace of God today. We've inherited this disposition from those great-grandparents that wars against the harmony of our marriages and in our home and with our kids and even our teams and in our employer-employee relationships. It's all a result of the fall. And in the last four weeks, 
We've been looking at the family life and what defines this high worth and high value of our homes. First of all, we looked at that it's because marriage itself is a sovereign creation of the Lord God. He set the standard with man and woman, not man and man or man and beast, but man and woman. And then he told us how long they were to dwell together, that it was for life. That was the paradigm. That was the standard. And because God sovereignly designed it that way, we don't get to change it at all. It's not the invention of man. It's not for us. It's for him. And so that was part two, actually technically part three last week. That marriage exists for God and for his glory, not for our own self-fulfillment, to make us happy or fulfill our wildest dreams and imagination. We looked at last week, because it's for his glory, that means that God is not subservient to our marriages or to our kids or to our relationship with our kids or our family, but rather our families are subservient to our God. We exist for him and to serve him totally and completely. He does not exist to serve us or our families or our wildest hopes and dreams. And so that brings us to week four that we look at today, and that is the Holy Spirit's filling and overflowing the marriage and the family gives it that high value, that high dignity. So what gives the the marriage and the family the high value? It's created by God. It exists for his glory and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not even our own effort that causes us to finish strong. And so we read Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at it tonight from about 30,000 feet. Okay, we're just going to kind of skim over it, and, um, and we're going to see that marriage can be almost totally restored or approximated to its original state through the power of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, our temptation is to go down to the local bookstore and to just buy the books or to attend the conferences. And you know what? You can buy every book that there is to read and attend every conference and rally that there could be for the family. But at the end of the day, it still comes down that we are fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we lack the power to live out what God has mandated for marriage and family in his holy word. Has anyone here ever read a book on marriage? How about parenting? About four of you. Okay. It's a good thing we're having this series. When you go to the Christian bookstore and you just randomly pick out books, one of the last chapters that you'll ever find in any of these books is a chapter on how you can receive the power to live out God's standard for our families and that it's found in the gospel. Most of these books are self-help and pragmatic at best. They just lay out a whole bunch of law for you. We're going to see tonight why that's just not good. Why don't we see the gospel being presented in these books as the answer? Why don't we see, you know, the forgiveness and reconciliation that's been bought by the blood of Jesus and then the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to help us live out our life? It's because we have lost the vision of how powerful the gospel is and how it gives us the bearing to even obey. As the church, we've just thought of the gospel as the door that gets us into the house of Christianity, when really the gospel is 
Every single truss, every nail, every stud, it's the electrical conduit as well as the wiring, it's the plumbing, it's the water that goes through those pipes. The gospel, the good news of salvation is the whole house of Christianity. And you are being robbed if you think anything less of the good news. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3 verses 2 and 3. Paul says this in this epistle that he champions grace and don't walk away from grace. And he says this, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So many of us will say, we would answer this question, man, I remember I got saved not by the works of the law, but by the hearing of faith, by the Holy Spirit regenerating me. That's how I was saved, not by working it out, not by working it. And yet then we think, well, now that I'm saved, now I work it. Now I do it all by the sweat of my brow and uh, you know, by the elbow grease that I produce. We've been going through the book of Romans, and we've been learning that we are all de depraved, we are all in desperate need of a savior. We've learned that the justification is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that justification, it means that that moment that we're saved, we're declared right in the eyes of God, just as if we've never sinned. And it has nothing to do with how many church camps that we've been to, how many chapters of the Bible we've ever read, what our bloodline is, whatever it might be. We are simply saved by God's grace, by putting our trust in him. Well, then the rest of the book of Romans goes on that not only are we saved by grace, but we're also sanctified by grace through faith. We continue on in the rest of our journey, battling temptation, battling sin, not in our flesh, not by our might, not by our power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. We continue on uh, in our sanctification process, even in our relationships, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so there in chapter 7, Paul lays out very clearly that our sanctification process, our being made more and more into the image of Christ, it's not by human muster. It's not by human energy. And chapter 7 specifically says, don't even think about going back to the law of Moses or any other law that you could create to make yourself right or to make yourself good once again. And so we often, we default by going back to the law of Moses. And if, oh, if I just do this and this and do these 10 commandments, then we forget, oh yeah, there's actually 613 commandments. I can't, I can't do this, but I'm sure going to try because I got to be right with God. 
Or some of us were like, I don't really care about the Old Testament. I don't really care about Deuteronomy, so I don't even think about that law. So I'm going to make my own laws. And the New Year's resolutions come along, and we make our own things that we've got to do. And then if we don't do it, we get all condemned and we feel bad. How about with our marriages and how about with our parenting? We get all these practical things that we've got to do. By gosh, I've created myself a law to do. This is how I'll get my wife to love me again. Guess what? You're just flesh and you can't do it. You're gonna fail. And when we fail either in the law of Moses or in the law of Rory or in the law of you enter in your own name, then we only walk in condemnation. We only walk in guilt and there's unforgiveness and bitterness all around the table because we just didn't measure up. The law will never do. The practical steps in and of themselves will never do. So then we come to chapter 8 of the book of Romans, and it's the glorious light after that chapter on the law. And it says there in chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit the things of the Spirit. And so Paul says, you know what? Doing it according to the flesh, it's just never going to do. And that's why Jesus came and he fulfilled the law for us. Then we put our faith in him. We're just as perfect as he is. And you know what? He's also fulfilled being the perfect husband for us. And so when we put our faith in him as the perfect husband, he imparts to us the grace and the obedience and the power to be those perfect husbands and to walk in obedience. And so apart from the good news of the gospel, that we were sinners saved by grace through faith, sanctified by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, any other marriage out there out there that appears to be doing okay, let me tell you this, they're either lying or it's been a big accident. <laughs> because the only way to have a perfect marriage is to put your faith and trust in the perfect groom and to receive his power to walk in all that he has mandated for us. You don't get there by better technique or better methods, but by the transforming power of the gospel, it's the only way to overcome these effects of the fall that we read about. That's where we've got to begin. That's the foundation, resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so looking from 30,000 feet over Ephesians chapter 5 and camping out in verse 18 for a little bit, we see that marriage's original glory in the Garden of Eden can finally be brought close to that again. Our marriages can be brought close to that again through the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, on this side of eternity, we will never, ever make it back to the way that marriage was supposed to be, but just approximately to that area. And why is that? It's because of the curse. 
It's because of the fall. Part of the curse is just that, you know, the women, your desire is going to be to rule over the man, you know, to go against God's divine order and, and the way he has set things up. Men, you're going to be selfish, you know, you're going to fall and, and go back on that and not live out the pattern that Jesus has demonstrated for us because of the curse. We'll never live up to our fantasies in our marriages. But you know what? That's okay because our fantasies aren't necessarily right. <laughs> in fact, a lot of our fantasies of what we want our marriage to be, they're kind of idolatry. They're not biblical. They're, you know, great big expectations that we put on our future spouse, that guy, that girl, or our spouses that we have now that were never meant to be there. They're not biblical standards, biblical fantasies. And so you look back at Mount Sinai. The law is given these Ten Commandments. God declares, I will be your God, you will be my people. And the law is given, but there were two problems with that. Number one, the fall made it impossible to keep these commandments. And number two, the law never provided the power of keeping the commandment. What the law did was provide the hints to remedy the very problem that kept them from fulfilling the law. There was going to be a better covenant to come, a more superior covenant that would deal with the problem that kept them from fulfilling the Mosaic law. This new covenant with all of its better benefits came about, and we remember it every Sunday here at this church when we take communion. We remember the blood and the body of Jesus, the blood that was spilled, the body that was broken for the forgiveness of sins, to be part of this new covenant community where we don't keep the covenant, but Jesus kept the covenant. So what does this have to do with marriage? Has everything to do with marriage? Let's look at the wives for a second within the scripture that we read tonight. Among a lot of other responsibilities, what is the most obvious call that a Christian wife is to assume in marriage? You guys should know it if you've been in church for long. Wives. Oh, you're afraid to say it. Come on, we're not in Multnomah County. Just say it. We're in Crook County. You can say it. it gets thrown around there all the time. You, wives, you husbands know it well. Say it to your wives every day. So it's this role of submission. And you guys know as well as I do, 99% of the people in this room, especially the married people, you've heard so many sermons on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, probably more than you care to remember. You know what this calling is to wives. You know what this command is to wives. Husbands, you know what your command is. And you don't need a whole lot more information than what you have been given. The problem isn't that you lack information or data. You know the command, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. The problem is that you and I lack the strength to live out those things. This book, No Ordinary Marriage, that I've been reading, written by Tim Savage, he says, the best human advice may bring momentary relief, but it can never produce a sustained marital assent. 
excuse me, we need more, much more. We need a miracle of transformation at the core of our beings, a miracle only Christ can perform. The new covenant that Jesus sealed the deal with, with his blood, addresses our weakness, addresses our lack of power. And it's not written on the cold, dead stones that Moses carried down Mount Sinai, but it's written on what, Paul tells us? The tablets of our heart, living, beating tablets. And this new covenant is distinguished by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Tim Savage goes on to speak of the power of the Spirit. This point can hardly be stressed enough. Marital partnerships need renewing by a supernatural work of God's Spirit. He tells this story. Recently, I wish I could tell it, but my stories aren't this cool. I count on you guys to give me some good stories. He says, recently a friend whose marriage was at the point of collapse returned from the therapist with an optimistic report. The counselor really made me feel better about myself. Although the words were encouraging on one level, they were the equivalent of spreading icing on a moldy cake. While tasty, it camouflages a deeper problem. While putting my friend in touch with her feelings, it does not put her in touch with her God. While making her feel good about herself, it does not in fact make her good. It is only when we confess the spiritual nature of our marital problems, the internal defect at the core of our beings that we will yearn for the supernatural assistance offered by Christ. We need a makeover of our innermost parts, our hearts, a coronary transformation by the healing touch of the Spirit of Christ. What is the problem with our homes? What is the problem with our marriages and our parenting? It's hearts. It's sin. That if not yet, having been revived by the Spirit of God, having been forgiven and been born again, they need that to happen. And then once we are born again, our heart can still be the issue. And we need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, or Jesus, I guess it was Jesus, speaking a long time before himself, in Ezekiel 11, verse 19 through 20, The prophecy goes forth that I'll give you a new heart. Then I will give them one heart. I'll put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. You have a sin issue, you've fallen, you have inherent sin, thanks to Adam and Eve, and you also have imputed sin, thanks to your own sin that you just wanted to do. So you are all out a sinner. You've got a stony heart, you can't hear God or know God, but God says, ha ha, I've got a solution. I will regenerate you. You can be born again. I'll take out your old stony heart and I'll put a heart that beats and can know God back in its place. A radical transformation that takes place when someone puts their faith in Jesus as their savior. This other book I referenced, When Sinners Say I Do, authored by Dave Harvey, says this, the benefits of this new birth, the paradox of our sins and our relationship with Christ do not remove us from the battle, 
Instead, they guarantee our victory. Informed by the word of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can make your battles fewer, shorter, and not mere and not merely less harmful, but actually redemptive, allowing your marriage to steadily grow in sweetness. So we're not removed from the battle. We're remaining in the battle, and we're giving victories by the power that he provides, and he is glorified in every single win. And so here in Ephesians, you're like, are we even going to get to the text tonight? I was wondering the same thing, actually. Here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul links the power of the Holy Spirit with the command for wives to submit, husbands to obey, parents to not provoke their kids to wrath, children to obey their parents, employers to treat their employees well, and employees to obey and serve with integrity. But it's not given the command, well, just do better. It actually is given a far greater command, and that is to rely on the Holy Spirit. Okay, so verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, so that's all we're going to talk about tonight, ladies. No, just kidding. We're going to spend quite a few weeks on that one. Um, I think we've done the husband's part already, so... Almost done with this series. Um, just kidding. There's a huge problem with this uh, verse that we have up on the screen, and that is that the word submit does not appear in the original text. So, ladies, you don't have to do it anymore. Woo! Okay, no. Here's what the original text reads. Did I hear a yay? I'm telling Scott. Okay. The original text reads, Wives to your husbands. That's it. Wives to your husbands. It's kind of like a Mad Libs puzzle that we've got going on here. We've got to fill in some blanks to get to what we've got up on the screen. And so if submit is even implied to put it in there, where is it implied from in our text? We're going to go backwards, okay? Um, It's going to be a little funky. If you have your Bible, just go back. So that was verse 22. Let's go back to verse 21. It says that we're to be submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, I'm not a big English guy, but just in the studying I've done, that uh, verb there, it's more of a participle that can't stand on its own. It's got to stand on something else. We're needing a main verb here to know what does this whole submitting thing connect to. So we've got to go backwards Again, and we don't see anything in verse 20, we don't see anything in verse 19, and here in verse 18, we finally come to it. We come to two main verbs. And so the first one being in verse 18, stop getting drunk with wine, where there's debauchery, recklessness, and wastefulness. And so it could read, wives, stop getting drunk with wine, where there's debauchery to your husbands. Okay? Or there's the second verb, and the more new recent verb, um, which is, but be filled or continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. So what does B 
being filled with the Holy Spirit look like? We see that in the verses following. In verse 19, we see if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's just speaking. That's not even singing. That's like rapping. That's like talking songs out. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. It's only a day away. Things like that, okay? We do that to each other, okay? And so we speak to one another, and that's part of being filled with the Spirit, community, right? There's also worship, where we, now we get to sing, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. And so there's this worship that takes place if you are filled with the Spirit of God. There's this internal compulsion to worship God. We want to worship. We want to praise God. If you're a person that doesn't want to worship and praise God like ever, then it's a good time to have the Lord examine your heart, as Hebrews tells us, to see if you're even of the faith. That's actually a gift from the Lord that you would realize that tonight. Like, I never want to worship. I never want to, like, never speak to my brother. I never sing to one another, or speak to one another psalms or hymns or spiritual, you know. Uh, then God gave you a gift tonight by showing, like, man, maybe tonight you need to, like, be born again. Have the Holy Spirit fill you so these things will just be flowing out of you like a a well overflowing. Then in verse 20, we have more effects of a spirit-filled life that we'll be giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be thankful. We'll be submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, verse 21. There's this submission that takes place. And so one of the marks of being spirit-filled and controlled is submission. When people don't want to submit to their employer, to their pastor, to their government, to their parent. We had a parking ministry in our church. Boise, do you guys have that? Like parking attendants that help people get into the church. That was like the worst place in the world where people would come into church and someone on the parking is like, there's a nice spot over here for you, ma'am. And they just blow by them like, I'll park where I want to park. Thank you very much. Like, nobody wants to submit to anybody, even within the church. We don't want to submit to our doctor. It's part of our fallen condition. And so if you don't have a heart of submission to anyone or anything, perhaps you're not filled with the Spirit. Now, Colossians chapter 3 is another big marriage chapter. So is 1 Peter chapter 3 and Titus chapter 2. And there's some similar commands towards women and husbands in Colossians chapter 3. Now, before those commands are given, we see that the church in Colossae was full of men and women of faith, chapter 1 shows us. Chapter 1 shows us that they knew the truth. Chapter 1 of Colossians shows us that they'd been reconciled. Colossians chapter 2 shows us that they had received Christ Jesus as Lord. And so these people, the Colossians, were born again loved the truth, and were now radically different as husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, child, etc. And when you look at these instructions and all of these marriage chapters, all these family chapters, we ask ourselves, how can I do that? How can I do that? Well, we'll never just read it and then start doing it in our own strength. It'll just never happen. Alistair Beggs, one of my favorite teachers, He said, show me Shakespeare and tell me to write a Shakespeare play and I could never do it. But give me the spirit of Shakespeare and have him come live in me and I can get the job done. He wanted to say, show me the life of Jesus Christ and tell me to live a life like that and I can never do it. But place the spirit of Christ in me 
and you'll see radical actions taking place. And so we have this great command that launches us into the rest of Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, these relational passages that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 adds one. Not only are we to be full of the Spirit, but it says that we're to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And then we see the fruits of that happening. And do they sound similar to the Ephesians 5 things? Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We're going to have the fruits of the Spirit flowing out of us as we have communion with God and we have the Word of Christ dwelling richly in us. And so, the obedience that comes from family, for family instruction is from the Holy Spirit's power. Husbands, the reason you're not acting the way that you should, the reason that you're harsh with your wife, the reason that you're not pouring yourself out uh, in costly ways to your wife, self-sacrifice, is because you're not living the spirit-filled, word-indwelt life. Wives, the reason that you're not living according to the scriptures, but according to the views of the world, you're not respecting your husband's, Your wildest dreams have been crushed, and so you know, you're, you're closed off to him. It's because you're not living the spirit-filled, word-and-dwelt life. And so the, high, uh, the wife that's asked to submit to her husband, the husband that's told to love the wife, can't be done in our own power. Submission, wives, can't be done in your own power. John Calvin said, nothing is more contrary to the human spirit Then for one to submit to another, we don't like doing it. Every one of us struggles with that. And that's why the call is given in Ephesians 5.21 that everyone is submit to one another. Everyone is to submit to one another. Because we can't do it, that's what makes it a supernatural activity. Begg goes on to say, we have the pattern but cannot see it through. The pattern is not given in isolation from the power. Praise God for the new covenant, huh? What if we just had the pattern again? Do this, do that. Husbands, do this, do that. Manipulate your wives into finally loving you back. Wives, do this, do that. Manipulate your husbands into loving you. It's like, okay, so if we come back to the law again about works, the Holy Spirit empowers us to love our wives when they're unlovable. The Holy Spirit empowers us to respect, not us, you, to respect your husbands when he's not being very respectable. What about you wives, and you know you're out there, that are more talented, more intelligent, more spiritually mature, you have better you know, leadership instinctive and better qualities than your husbands, are you still supposed to respect your husband? Are you still supposed to submit to him? How? How can you place yourself in this position when you just seem to be better equipped in all of those areas? Hopefully you're getting it. By the Holy Spirit. (laughs) By the new covenant provision of the Holy Spirit that brings it home. This submission, ladies, has been purchased for you by the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Submission can be understood, gals, in light of the love of Christ. As you look at 1 Peter 3, 1, 
It says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Gals, you know that verse, right? You've heard that before. But have you ever looked at the likewise part? Likewise is like a therefore, right? You got to ask what it's there for. So what's this like, like what? Well, you go back. And you say, okay, well, okay, let's look at chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Let's look at verse 21 through 25. It says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in a turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Wives, likewise, Be submissive to your husbands. See, Jesus suffered and left us an example on how to suffer. He was obedient. He laid down his life to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He said, not my will, not myself be done, but your will be done. Wives, likewise. When your husband is so darn unrespectable, he's a clown, he's a turkey, he's a joker, you know what? Not my will be done, Lord. Your will be done. Like Jesus, I lay down myself. I suffer. It's a suffering thing, gals, to respect your husband when he's unrespectable. We've been given the prototype in Jesus, and he walked it out perfectly. We'll never begin to understand how to live out family life unless we see them as being framed within these terms the terms of God's redemption and God's empowerment. You know what? It's getting late and there's so much more to say, but I'm going to just close with what Jesus has done. In Romans 8, 11, says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Tim Savage said, the God who can turn something as ugly as a crucifixion into something as beautiful as a resurrection can surely provide for the revival of our marriages. When the power of the resurrection is applied to the hearts of husbands and wives, even the worst interpersonal fractures can be mended. So it was so good to sing about the resurrection. And Tammy, you can come on back, come back up. So good to sing about the resurrection because it gets our eyes on the glorious good news that Jesus isn't still dead. He conquered the cross. He conquered the grave that he could bring victory into our lifeless bodies, our lifeless marriages. And that same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and brought that ultimate victory dwells in all who believe. And so let's worship him tonight. Let's glorify him. Let's bring our sufferings and our relationships and our marriages and our homes before him tonight. And just say, God, 
bring the, the good news to this. Apply the good news of your spirit's empowerment to bring healing, to help me to die to self, to help me to love my wife, to help me to respect my husband. Let's go ahead and just pray. Lord, just forgive us of arrogance, Lord. We're so prideful in thinking that we can do it on our own, God. I just know this is what I've got to do to be a good parent. And this is just what I've got to do to be a good employee at the 7-Eleven or at the gas station or at the accounting firm. This is what I've got to do. This is what I've got to do to, to make my wife love me. This is what I've got to do to, to make her respect me or my husband love Lord, Lord, we just, we see the cross and we see the Son of God slaughtered because we couldn't do it. And Lord, here we are trying to be made perfect and right in all of our relationships and our strength again. Forgive us of that. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just be poured out upon us tonight for power to obey you and all the things that you desire, the standards that you've set forth. And Lord, we know that when the temptation comes, Lord, that we can rely and just submit to the power you provide. And then when the next temptation comes, Lord, we can rely to that power again and, and again and again. And Lord, we know it just gets easier and easier. By your spirit, Lord, you just set us on the track of being more like Jesus in holiness and in purity and, and in love and in selflessness and and so, Lord, for those of us that haven't even taken that first step or gotten on that track yet, Lord God, we just ask you to put us there. To put us there, Lord. That the next temptation, the next time we want to just yell at our husband or yell at our wife or manipulate them with silence, or be bitter towards them, be frustrated burst out in wrath and anger, God, that we would just yield to you and say, Lord, Lord, I yield. And Lord, you would just bring about that pattern of holiness for your name, for your glory, God. And Lord, again, we thank you that you're that prototype, your great love for us. You're that true and better groom, Lord. And so as we worship you and get our eyes on you, transform us tonight, even by the power of your spirit. Pour yourself upon us for power to be good husbands, wives, children, and witnesses this week. That we'd be good servants in this community. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, you tell us. And so pour him out on us tonight. Let's stand. We'll just close with this song. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.